we as people love stories of rescue. Oftentimes we evaluate how good a story is by how dramatic the rescue plot develops. Typically, in such plots, there's a conflict between good guys and bad guys. And somehow, good guys uh, get in trouble, and eventually, the good guys are rescued and conquer. That's the narrative. That's the, the common default narrative of, of much of the good rescue stories. The story of the Bible, however, is a, a story of rescue, but there's a big difference. And here's a difference. It's not the good guys that get rescued. It's the bad guys. It's not the good guys that deserve to be rescued. It's not the good guys that, that, that somehow a rescuer shows up to, to redeem them. It's the bad guys who don't deserve to be rescued. This morning, we are going to be looking at a part of Scripture in the Old Testament where God shows himself as a great rescuer. And it's not for the good guys, but for the bad guys. Would you open God's Word to Isaiah chapter 43? We'll be looking at verse 1 and reading all the way to chapter 44, verse 5. Isaiah chapter 43, from verse 1 to chapter 44, verse 5. Here's God's word for us this morning. But now, thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you, because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east, and from the west I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar, and my daughters from the end of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Bring out the people who are blind, yet have yet have eyes, who are deaf, yet have ears. All the nations gather together, and the peoples assemble. Who among them can declare this, and show us the former things? Let them bring their witnesses to prove them right, and let them hear and say, it is true. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I, I am the Lord, and beside me there is no Savior. I declared and saved and proclaimed when there is no strange God among you. 
And you are my witnesses, declares the Lord. And I am God. Also, henceforth, I am He. There is none who can deliver from my hand. I work. And who can turn it back? Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. For your sake I send to Babylon and bring them all down as fugitives, even the Chaldeans in the ships in which they rejoice. I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. Thus says the Lord, who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters, who brings forth chariot and horse, army and warrior. They lie down, they cannot rise. They are extinguished, quenched like a wick. Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The wild beasts will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches, for I give water in the wilderness, river in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself, that they may declare my praise. Yet you did not call upon me, O Jacob, but you have been weary of me, O Israel. You have not brought me your sheep for burnt offerings or honored me with your sacrifices. I have not burdened you with offerings or wearied you with frankincense. You have not bought me sweet cane with money or satisfied me with the fat of your sacrifices, but you have burdened me with your sins. You have wearied me with your iniquities. I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Put me in remembrance. Let us argue together. Set forth your case that you may be proved right. Your first father sinned. And your mediators transgressed against me. Therefore I will profane the princes of the sanctuary and deliver Jacob to utter destruction and Israel to reviling. But now, hear, O Jacob, my servant, Israel whom I have chosen, thus says the Lord who made you, who formed you from the womb and will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen, for I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing upon your descendants. They shall spring up among the grass like willows by the flowing streams. This one will say, I am the Lord's. Another will call on the name of Jacob and another will write on his hand, the Lord's. And the name himself, and name himself by the name of Israel. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Would you bow with me in prayer, asking God to bless the preaching of his word? Let's pray. Father, we praise you for revealing yourself as a God of redemption. This morning, as we hear from you, we pray that you would speak to our hearts in a way that anything that keeps us in bondage would be released. In a way that your people will come to you 
freed of their burdens, freed of the burden of sin, freed from the blindness of sin. Oh, Lord, we pray that you would bring the work of redemption continuously into our hearts and minds, even today, even now, through the proclamation of your word. We pray this for the glory of Christ and in the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Well, friends, earlier in the book of Isaiah, earlier in the previous chapter, in chapter 42, verse 16, God declared an interesting promise that he will lead the blind in a way that they have not known, that he will turn the darkness before them into light. And that sounds great, but what does that mean? How does that manifest? In chapter 43, we get more details and an explanation of what does that look like, that God would take the blind and lead them on a path they have not known and turn the darkness before them into light. Blindness and darkness need no mere treatment. They need no mere self-improvement or self-help strategies. The blindness and the darkness that God speaks of is that which, which, which He alone will address and deal with. The blindness and darkness that God speaks of needs rescue and redemption. And this rescue and redemption is offered, is granted, is given by God Himself. And that's why this morning we're looking at the theme of God, the God of redemption. As we look at this passage, there's going to be three major points. And uh, first point, we'll have six suck points. So just to give you a heads up. Uh, three points. God speaks to the fears of His people. God declares to be the only Savior. And thirdly, God promises to do a new work. Let's look at this God of redemption and, what he, and how He comes to His people to address their blindness and to address the darkness that is before them. The first point that we look at this morning, we'll look at this morning, is God speaks to the fears of His people. The need to overcome fear is an ongoing need for us, for humanity. No matter who you are, no matter where you live, life presents us with fears sooner or later. As people, we often fall prey to our fears of what is, what is to come, what will happen to us. And worse of all, worse than falling into fears is that we often don't realize it. We develop fears because of the circumstances around us. We develop fears because we don't know what the future will bring. We develop fears because of the uncontrollable circumstances. We don't know and we can't control. The people addressed in this text had many, many, many fears. Let's review why. In chapter 42, the passage we covered last week, God exposed the blindness of his own people, Israel. Their blindness was manifested in two ways. First of all, they did not follow God's word. Now, you may be surprised this morning to hear that not following God's word is described in the Bible as a form of blindness. 
God's people had God's word. They had access to God's decrees, what God wanted from them. And yet they chose not to follow in God's path. And because of their rebellious disobedience to God, they triggered God's severe punishment, which God warned them about. That if they do not follow his ways, which God revealed to them, that God will take them out of their land. And God acted upon what he said. God took them out of their land through a very painful exile. Yet even though they were exiled, even though God warned them from in the book of Deuteronomy and told them that if they will turn their backs to God, if they will begin following other idols, God will take them out of their exile, out of their land into exile. God said that to them beforehand, centuries before. Now they are experiencing the exile, and even though they were exiled, the second way in which Israel's blindness was manifested is that they did not understand that it is God who exiled them. Israel needed to grasp that their captivity was not caused simply by the Babylonians, but by God according to what God had predicted and foretold. Look at verse 25 in chapter 42. So God, he, God, poured on him the heat of his anger, and the might of battle. It set him on fire all around, but he did not understand. It burned him up, but he did not take it to heart. This is talking about Israel. Israel was in exile. Israel was through the fire of God's discipline. And yet Israel's blindness manifested even in this, that Israel did not realize that it was all because of God's punishment and discipline. To such a people, to such a people who were in this state of, of the exile, Isaiah begins chapter 43 with the words, but now. Up to this point, God spoke about his people's blindness in chapter 42. God spoke about the punishment that he brought as a discipline against his people's sin. Now friends, if that's all that God said, he would still be right he would still be a good and just God. He acted justly according to his word. Yet chapter 43 begins with the words, But now, but now, thus says the Lord, Fear not. This means that the discipline that God brought against them was not meant to destroy them. Even though, humanly speaking, they experienced great devastations. They were deported into a foreign land. Fire and sword devoured the city of Jerusalem. Families were separated. Inheritances were plundered. Humanly speaking, these people had many reasons to be in fear, to be in despair. Their lives and their dreams were ruined, so they had lots and lots and lots of reasons to be in fear. To such a people, God now speaks and says, Fear not. God knows that their hearts are fearful. 
And God knows even why their hearts are fearful. And God addresses them with this but now by landing in the midst of their fears. This is God's gracious intervention. God could have left his people in the wallow of their fears. They certainly deserved it. But God does not leave them in their fears. God wants God does not want them to live with their fears. God's gracious heart is seen even in this undeserved address to his people's fears. Now, why should God's people not be afraid? We see this command, do not fear, twice in this passage. But why not? Why should God's people not be afraid? Look at six reasons God gives his people. Why, in the midst of all their circumstances, that would cry out to them and say, you can be afraid. It's legitimate to be afraid. Here's why God's people should not and cannot and ought not to be afraid. First of all, so if you're taking notes, we're in point one, sub point one. There's going to be six sub points, six reasons why God's people cannot be afraid and should not be afraid. Here's number one, because God owns his people. Because God owns his people. Look at verse one. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by my name. You are mine. And before that, he says, the Lord who created you, the Lord who formed you. In other words, don't be afraid because God owns you. How do we know God owns us? On what basis does God own us? On the basis of the fact that God created his people? On the basis of the fact that God redeemed his people? On the basis of the fact that God called his people. God has ownership rights over his people because of these three reasons. The right of creation, the right of redemption, and the right of naming and calling. Oh, friends, how easy it is for us to give in to our fears because we fail to remember whose we are. When we are assailed by fears, we keep our eyes focused on our circumstances, and God says, Turn away your direction from your circumstances and remember, whose are you? You are mine. In our fears, our emotions are more attached to what happens to us rather than remembering who owns us and who is watching over us. Oh, friends, when fears assail your heart, train your heart to meditate on this great truth. We are not our own. We are God's property. Second, the second reason why we cannot fear and we should not fear is because of God's promise to be with his people. Look at verse 2. When you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. Now, friends, notice here, life with God is not spared from trials and difficulties. God does not uh, uh, promise that fire or the deep waters will not attack us. The Apostle Paul told new believers in Acts chapter 14 that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. We should expect the trials, the tribulations. God promised not to keep us from trials. God promise to keep us through the trial. So when fears fill our soul, remember 
that God promised to be with his own children through the fiery trials. Perhaps it's no surprise that when Daniel's three friends were in Babylon, and the king of Babylon chose to throw them in the heated furnace, the Lord actually applied this promise and fulfilled this promise in the most literal of ways. In the book of Isaiah, this promise is more of a figurative promise. The fire, of, the fire that Isaiah is talking about is the fire of the exile. The exile was so consuming to the people of Israel that it's, it's pictured here through this picture of, a, of walking through fire or, or walking through deep waters. And God says, I am with you even in those. So why not fear? Because God promises to be with his people. A third reason why we should not fear is because God promises to be our Savior. Look at verse 3. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. One of the important characteristics in this passage that describes God, that God uses to describe himself, is that God is the Savior, the Rescuer even out of the most difficult of circumstances. Now, it's amazing, however, that before God promises to be their Savior, He first declares to be their God. Oh, friends, here in this passage, God's promise of salvation is closely tied with embracing the reality that God is our God. There's people today who might want God to save them out of their trouble, but they don't want God to be their God. They just want, they just want a, a little sugar daddy to go to when they're in trouble, to get him out of trouble. And God is not a sugar daddy. He is a Savior, and He's God, and He wants to be your God. He wants you to, to keep Him on the throne of your life above all things. He's not there to fulfill your pleasures. He's not there simply to fulfill your dreams. He's there to be your God. And as your God, He is your Savior. A fourth reason why God's people don't need to be afraid is because God's people are precious to God. We're told in verse 3 and 4 that God gives nations in exchange of His people. And indeed, this is what took place when King Cyrus freed the people of Israel from Babylon. When he came to take over Babylon, when he took over Egypt and Seba and released the captives of Israel, God was willing to give the destiny of nations for the sake of rescuing his own people. Friends, our natural impulses when we are disciplined is to think that God's discipline means God's distance or God's hatred. God wants to assure his people that despite the discipline, his love has not changed for them. And how is God assuring his people of his love for his people, even in the midst of the discipline? God tells him, I am giving nations in exchange for you. Friends, think about parents. When, when we discipline our children, one of the truths we repeat right after the discipline takes place is that we love them. Why? Because we want them to know that despite the discipline, 
that they might feel distance from us. They need to be assured how precious they are to us so that they understand the discipline comes out of a heart of love, not out of a heart that is distant or out of a heart that is full of hatred towards them. In a similar way, God here, in the midst of disciplining his people, he tells them how much he cares for them, how precious they are in his sight. And he does it by telling them that he is willing to give nations in exchange for them. A time will come centuries later that God will tell his people that he, they are precious in his sight, so precious that he's willing, willing to give in exchange not mere nations, but his own son for the sake of redeeming them. A, thir- a fifth reason why we can not be afraid is because God will restore his people. What was most hurtful, what was most fearful for the people of Israel at the time of the exile was not simply the devastation of the land, was not even the tragic violence and the death that they've experienced. What was most tragic to a Jew was that their offspring would be lost among the nations. It was not merely the loss of the land, but the loss of an offspring. And this is, to this last fear, God speaks aloud us in verses 5 and 7. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and from the west. I will gather you. In these verses, we get to see God's power. How is it that God will restore his people? What will God need in order to bring his people back? In verse 6, all that he will need to bring his people back is to speak. Do you notice in verse 6? I will say to the north, give them up. And to the south, do not hold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Friends, do you see why God's people should not be fearful? When they hear that all that God needs to do to bring the offspring that has been spread among the nations, to bring them back, all that God will need to do is say a word. Give them up. Oh, friends, why would God's people be afraid if their ultimate destiny stands in the simple words of God? That's all they must be fearful of. That's all they must be in awe of. The word of God, the decree of God. But friends, because all God needs to do is speak, that's why God's people don't need to be afraid. Lastly, our third or final reason why God's people don't need to be afraid is because God made his people for his glory. Notice who it is that God will call back to himself. Look at verse 7. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made, God will restore the people whom he made for his glory. God created his people not for their glory, but for his glory. The Westminster Catechism begins with the question, what is the chief end of man? And the answer is, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Well, friends, if we become convinced that our existence as a people of God is to glorify God, that God made us for his glory, then what we fear 
will begin to pale. The reason why our fears often get the best of us is because we think that God made us for our comfort or for our pleasure or for our fame or for our reputation. And God says, no, I made you not for yourself. I made you for me. I made you for my glory. But if our hearts cling more to our agendas, to our reputation, to our fame and comfort, no wonder, no wonder that fears will overcome us. Oh, friends, when fears assail your heart, remember the purpose for which God made us. He made us for His glory. Let the glory of the Lord dispel the fears that often assail our hearts. All this is point one. God spoke to the fears of His people and told them why they should not be afraid. In the second point of, of this passage, God declares to His people to be the only Savior. God declares to His people to be the only Savior. Starting in verse 8, God commands His people and the nations to gather again to show who is the true God. Look at verse 8 and 9. Bring out the people who are blind, yet have eyes, who are deaf, yet have ears. All the nations gather together, and the peoples assemble. And then he gives them this command. Who among them can declare this and show us the former things? Let them bring their witnesses to prove them right, and let them hear and say it is true. Earlier in, in Isaiah, God assembled the nations to come together and bring evidence to show who is a true God, to declare and see whether the gods of the nations are the true God. Um, we often, when we think about bringing evidence for the existence of God, we think about those conversations as being apologetic conversations. Uh, by God's grace, next week, uh, we will start a new class in Sunday school on apologetics. How do we think about the reasons for our faith, for why we believe in God? If you want to know more about that, just come next Sunday morning at 9.30 for a Sunday school class on apologetics. It'll be a 14-weeks-long class. But interestingly, here in this passage, God assembles the nations again. Let's consider the evidence. Why is it that we can believe in who is the true God? And let the gods, let the nations bring the evidence for the true God. When God considers bringing forth the evidence that He alone is a true God, notice what is His evidence in this passage. It's His own people. God says, you are my witnesses. But sadly, notice how His witnesses are. They are disqualified. They're blind. They're deaf. They don't observe well. Even though God wanted to show His power, His might, the, the historical proofs of His existence through the life of, their own, of His own people, at this stage when God addresses them, His own witnesses are blind and deaf. It is they themselves who need to be told the proofs that God alone is God. That's how bad it is. They are now brought into this court, imaginary court, not only as witnesses,
but as those who need to hear the evidence themselves because they have been blinded. They are walking in darkness. Now, how can blind and deaf people be witnesses? Well, the answer is God in this passage speaks to his own people and to the nations, but to his own people first, that he is the only true God, that there's no other God before him, there's no other God after him, and that he is the only Savior. In verse 11, God makes this big claim about himself. I, I am the Lord, and besides me, there's no Savior. Oh, friends, God wants his people to know and the nations to know. We cannot save ourselves. We cannot be the Savior of other people. Other people cannot save us. There's no other Savior besides God. In their own history, God's people have seen that. They have seen God's power to rescue them, particularly from the, from the bondage to Egypt. This passage, this chapter is full of imagery of the Exodus, as we will see later. When God called, told, uh, called Moses and told him ahead of time that God is going to bring his people out of the land of Egypt, uh, Moses at first didn't want to hear it. He didn't want to respond to it. But then God appeared to Moses and called him, made it clear that he wants to go. And then Moses went to God's people, to Egypt. He told Pharaoh, Pharaoh doesn't want to hear about it. And God says, all right, that's all right. I, I'm the one who, who actually hardened his heart. He doesn't want to hear about it. I'll let him have more of that. There's going to be ten plagues that's, that are going to become against Egypt to show my power and my might. After the tenth plague, God indeed rescued his people from the bondage to, to Egypt. God alone was their savior. In Israel has witnessed God's power to save. So at the end of verse 11, God says, You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. But because at this time, the people of God were blind and deaf and in darkness, in verse 14, God says, He will do another act of rescue. Apparently, the first act of historical rescue left his people still blind. So God says, I'm going to do another one. In verse 14, he says, I, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, for your sake, I sent to Babylon and bring them all down as fugitives, even the Chaldeans in the ships in which they rejoice. God says, I'm going to, to send someone against your enemies. And the enemies, your enemies, have taken you into exile. They will be going down as fugitives in the very ships they have rejoiced. Who is God going to send against them? In chapter 45, it will be King Cyrus. And indeed, this is what took place. The very people who have exiled Judah, God promised to make them fugitives in the ships that they took pride in and rejoiced in. And God kept his promise. God freed up his people from the bondage to Babylon God indeed saved his people according to what he declared. The proof of God's existence, my dear friends, is not only logical arguments, but historical arguments. By intervening in human history to rescue his people from bondage, God showed that nation that no enemy, no nation, no circumstance is too difficult to God to overcome and to restore. Centuries later, centuries later, God made another human intervention. Another 
divine intervention in human history when God sent His only Son, Jesus, to take on human flesh, to live a perfect life, and yet to die on a cross. On a third day, God raised Jesus from the dead physically, proving historically that Jesus had conquered death. And the physical resurrection of Jesus is the historic evidence for the existence of God and for our Christian faith. If the historical proof of the resurrection of Jesus could be proven false, then our faith in God, then our faith in Christ, then our entire Christian hope is totally in shambles. Dear friends, God proves His existence by the fact that He has intervened in human history with physical proofs. He has done it in the Exodus. He has done it in the recovery and the restoration of the Babylonian exile. He has done it in the death and resurrection of His own Son. God says in verse 15, I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. It shows us that God wants His people to see the evidence of His existence in their own history. God is not simply an idea. God is not simply a belief. God has intervened in our history to leave us proofs that He is real, that His decrees have power, that what He declares comes to pass. But at the time of the exile, even though God promised to bring His people out of the Babylonian exile, and even though that took place indeed, historically, God makes a final promise. And here's the last point for our time this morning. God promises to do a new work. Look at verse 16. God reminds his people of what kind of work, of what kind of God he is. He says, Thus says the Lord who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters, who brings forth chariot and horse, army and warrior. They lie down, they cannot rise, they are extinguished, quenched like a wick. All these descriptions describe how God acted in, ex in, the, in the redemption from Egypt. For God, a making a way in the sea and a path in the mighty waters is no big deal. For God to wipe out the enemies of Israel while Israel had no swords, no weaponry, was no big deal. God even brought the army of Egypt to the sea so he could drown them there. God did that. Israel had, didn't have to move a finger for that. And even when, when, when they did see the army, they really, really freaked out. They had no idea that it was God bringing the Egyptian army so he could drown them in the sea. They thought it was their life at the end. God said, no, I'm the one who's bringing them. Don't be afraid of them. Oh, my friends, can you, just can you, can you imagine being in, the, in that moment when you feel like, Oh, we, we got out of Egypt, but here's the army. Now we're doomed. And God says, don't be afraid. God brought all that army to the sea so he could drown them. Humanly speaking, such results as, as wiping out Pharaoh's army is humanly impossible for a nation who is not allowed to have guns and swords and military weapon. And yet God did it. But notice that God says in verse 18, as powerful as that old stuff was, God says, Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. But as glorious as the Exodus was, 
God says, don't live with the frozen image of the past. Look to something greater that I will do. The Exodus was indeed a mighty work, but God promised to do even a greater work. And what is a new thing that God declares to do? In verse 19 and 21, God promises that he is making a way in the wilderness, that God will uh, bring rivers in the desert in Isaiah. Um, this, re- this is referring to the return of the Babylonian captivity. The journey back from their land would be like a journey through the wilderness. Yet God says, I will provide for you. I will rescue you out of this captivity, and I will provide for your journey back home. But notice the motivation for rescuing God's people. It's in verse 21, the people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. Friends, if you are a Christian, the purpose of your existence is to declare the praises of God. That is why God made you. That is why God brought you to know him. That is how we find our purpose in life, to recognize we are made to declare God's praises. Do people around you know that? Do people around you know that you give credit to God for who you are? Sadly, even though this is what God says that the purpose of his people are or is, in verse 22 to 28, God reminds his own people that they have not honored God. God reminds his people that even though God has acted in such mighty ways in their past, God's people chose not to call upon the name of the Lord. So God was right in punishing his people. God was right in delivering Jacob to utter destruction because of their sin. The good guys have become bad guys. That's the story of the Old Testament. But the destruction and the punishment and the discipline is not God's last word. Look at verse 25. God promises. Here's what's, good, what's part of the new thing that God is doing. God promises to blot out their sin. Look at verse 25. I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my sake, for my own sake, and will not remember your sins. This promise tells us that Israel's greatest problem was not the Babylonian captivity. Israel's greatest enemy was their sin. Do you see that? How often we think that our greatest problems are our circumstances. God says, your greatest problem is your sin. How often we feel sorry for ourselves because of our circumstances. How often we feel fearful because of our circumstances. In reality, we should, be, we should feel sorry and fearful because of our sin and our rebellion. So what is the new thing that God is doing? Not merely physical restoration from physical bondage. The new thing that God promises to do is that he will deal with the sin of his people. Friends, having our sin dealt with, blotted out, is the greatest need for humanity. It is the greatest benefit that we could experience. Notice that God acts to deal with the sin of his people not for their people's sake, but for God's own sake. Not because they deserve it, because they don't. Yet God blots out their transgression for God's own sake. What moves God to save his people is not his people. It's God's glory. If we can get a capture, if we get capture that and get a hold of that, what moves God 
to save his people is not his people. It's God's glory. In, verses, in chapter 44, verses 1 through 5, God tells us another thing that he is doing in this new thing that he will do. In verse 3, God promises to pour out his spirit upon the offspring of his people. God not only blots out their sin, God pours his spirit upon his offspring so that from now on, there is a part of God who will dwell in the offspring of his people. God comes to be inside his people by his spirit. And the effect of that new work of God, notice verse 5. How will we know? How will we see the fruit that God is doing this new work? Look at verse 5. This one will say, I am the Lord's. Another will write on his hand, the Lord's. In other words, the people of God will have a clear sense that they belong to God. Let me ask you. Do you? Can you say with a clear conscience and certainty that you belong to the Lord? Would you tell other people that you belong to the Lord? One of the effects of the Spirit of God has been poured into our hearts is this assurance that comes from the Holy Spirit that we belong to God. Oh, dear friend, if you don't have this assurance in your own heart that you belong to God, I pray that you will not leave this place without inquiring of the Lord and inquiring in your own heart how you can belong to God. I would like to tell you how you can belong to God. But if you have more questions about it, I would love to talk to you at the end of the service. You can find me in the hallway, um, or even, even now as we talk about it, I want to share with you briefly how is it that someone can belong to the Lord. The reality is that none of us by our birth have the right to belong to the Lord. By our birth, we all have turned our backs to Him. By birth, we are inherited, we have inherited a nature that inclines us to turn our backs to the Lord. And because we do turn our back to the Lord, we righteously deserve, rightly deserve His punishment. But God in His mercy and grace sent His own Son, Jesus, to die and take upon Himself the penalty that we have deserved. Three days later, God raised Jesus from the dead, proving that Jesus indeed was able to conquer death and pay in full the penalty of our sin. So all those who would repent and trust in Christ could be granted forgiveness of sins and be adopted into God's family. And God would pour on them His Holy Spirit and make them children of God. When the Holy Spirit is poured into our hearts, the Holy Spirit begins a new life in us. He awakens our eyes. He awakens our minds. We are enabled to see the riches of God's grace. We are enabled to see the, the conviction of sin. We are enabled to see what Christ has done for us. And we turn to Him in repentance and faith. As you hear this news, I want to encourage you to turn away your life of ignorance, your life of desiring to keep your life only for yourself, to keep control of your life on your own. Turn away from your rebellion against God. Turn away from yourself. Turn to God. Friends, when we turn to God and trust 
not in ourselves, but in what Jesus has done, God brings in us a new life. And this new life gives us the assurance that we are now children of God, that we belong to God. Oh, friend, if you would like to know more about what to do or how to follow up on this news, I'd love to talk to you at the end of the service. I'd encourage you to talk to Taylor or to some of the other members in our congregation. Don't leave this place without knowing that you belong to God. One of the signs, one of the assurances that God gives us when he pours out his spirit upon us is that now we know we belong to him. Oh, friend, this is how anyone can belong to God, by calling on the name of the, of the Lord to be saved from their sin, by trusting in Christ for their salvation. God's new thing that he had promised to do is not merely physical bondage, physical restoration being solved, but spiritual. The bondage from sin, the bondage from darkness, the bondage from the, from the spiritual blindness. This God promises to do anew. And he did it, not during the time of Isaiah. He did it when he sent his only son, Jesus. And after Jesus was, was resurrected, and after Jesus ascended into heaven, ten days later, God sent his Holy Spirit. He poured out his Spirit upon the offspring of his people to prove that everything that God said centuries before to the prophet of Isaiah would come to pass. So that now, my dear friends, we can live in the power of the Holy Spirit. And we declare this news to one another. We encourage one another with this gospel of truth, knowing that God is a God of redemption, who has brought this redemption through His Son, Jesus, and who applies this redemption to the work of the Holy Spirit. God speaks the fears of His people. God declares to be the only Savior, and God promises to do a new work. I wonder, has God done this new work in your life? Has God done it? And if He has... Do you boast in it? Do you live in it? Do you rejoice in it? Let your fears calm down in light of this new work that God has already begun in you and that God will carry to completion. Let's close in prayer. Lord, none of us deserve your redemption. If you have saved us, it's not because of what we have done. And if you save others today, it is not because of what they deserve. It's because of contrary of what they deserve. It's because of what you have done and because of your glory. Lord, we pray, would you continue to make this redemption known? Would you continue to, to rescue and redeem people for your sake, for your glory? We pray that we would be a people who boast in you, not in ourselves, not in what we have done, but only in you for the praise of your glory.